Our teaching this morning is both a prayer and a confession, sort of a confession of faith, if you will. If you look back in your order of worship on page six, you'll remember that this morning we ask and answered questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the context of confessing our faith. We asked questions about Christ and asked questions about repentance, and then we gave answers to those. Why do we do something like that every week? Why do we state what we believe if we already believe it? And of course, the answer is that in some way that our hearts and our minds need to be reminded of that which is true so that we will grow in our maturity of them. And as we confess our faith week after week, our faith really does grow stronger. If we are going to see a prayer of confidence like we have this morning from Psalm 62, we need to see in this psalm that David was a very confident man. And this prayer is a prayer of confidence. So if you'll keep your Bibles open to Psalm 62, we'll be going through this verse by verse and really continuing our series this summer of the Psalms. We are searching and focusing on the theme of joy and searching in these Old Testament songs for ways in which we see joy in the Lord. Uh, Last Sunday, Will gave us a beautiful description of joy as he showed us and described for us that the blessed person of God, that is a Christian, is a man or a woman who lives in this heightened state of happiness. I thought about that all week last week, that that really is who we are because Christ is who he is. If we want to be perpetually happy, it really is an impossibility if we try to do that just as our goal. But if we lean into the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he says is true of us, it really can be the reality that no matter what circumstances we are going through, the state of our soul can be that of joy. When you think of joy, I hope that you can accept this really is God's gift to us. Joy was purchased for us by the person of Jesus himself when he died. He made available for us to enjoy joy, to use joy, to have joy as our possession, our benefit, even our way of life. And that's what we're going to see today. Because of Christ's work and because of the faith that he has given to us, joy really is the condition of our heart. That our affections in this life are free to be that of joy. Joy exists for you today if you know Christ. So here's my proposition for us as we go through the psalm. The more confident you are in the kingship of Jesus, the more joy you will experience inside of his kingdom. Let me say that again. The more confident you are in the kingdom of Jesus, the the kingship rather, of Jesus, the more joy you will experience inside of his kingdom. That is the more that you truly believe Jesus is alive, Jesus is good, Jesus is at work, Jesus is still converting, Jesus hears your prayers, Jesus answers your prayers, Jesus speaks from his word, Jesus lives in his body, the church. That is the more your heart is convinced That because of the cross, that God loves you and you are his bride. As that gospel takes root in your heart, you will grow in confidence of who he is and joy will be the result. All right, here's how we're going to look at this this morning from Psalm 62. 
I want you to see in this psalm and to hear these words as a declaration of a confession of faith, of an overflow of that which is true of someone who has God's spirit inside of them. Let's look at this in three parts. Verses 1 through 4, I want you to notice the competition for joy. Verses 5 through 8, the continuity of joy. Then lastly, verses 9 through 12, the choice of joy. So the competition, the continuity, and the choice. And by God's grace, this ancient prayer will match the heart of our prayer this morning. All right, first, notice the competition that exists. Look back in these first few verses and see that there's a battle waging inside of the author's heart. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he states in multiple times that God alone is his strength. And based on all that we know of David's life, all that we know of his life and ministry, there's no doubt that this is true. Yet he mentions several different things which are a threat to him and the state of his soul. First, he mentions that he waits for God in silence. Silence is not always easy. Secondly, he mentions that he will not be shaken, implying that there was something out there that at least hypothetically could shake him. Either a bad circumstance or bad news or something that was there. But then in verse 3, we have something a little bit more specific. And he mentions that there are people who wish to bring injury upon him. He states that these people attack him and seek his destruction. It's interesting, he compares them to a leaning wall. I kind of find that funny. I don't know exactly what that means. In some way, it's that people who did not have a firm foundation in their life could topple over and fall on top of him. Regardless, David experienced threats from people People either disliked him or disagreed with him, and they wanted to stop him. Can we be honest for just a moment and admit that people problems are typically the worst problems? But here for David, people, circumstances, silence, they all had potential to be dreadful, don't they? But now notice the heightened state of happiness expressed by David in that We do not see in this psalm a man who was floundering. We do not see a man who is fretting. We don't see a man who is fearful. We see that in other places in Scripture, and frankly in other places in David's life, but not here in Psalm 62. Rather, David simply confesses his faith back to the Lord in the context of a prayer. In light of all that he knows that God is... In light of all that was surrounding him, his definitive answer was simply this. For God alone, my soul will wait. So let me ask, considering David's plight, where does your heart this morning find competition for your source of joy? Are there circumstances that you wish were different? Are there people in your life that are difficult? Are there troubles that exist? I'm sure there are for each of those. But can you be honest and admit that there is only one source of ultimate joy, and that is found in our Heavenly Father? A different set of people, a different set of circumstances, really may not change anything at all. I like to think of King Saul in comparison here to David's life. David's predecessor to the kingship in Israel was a man who had incredible talent, 
who had incredible gifts. Yet King Saul was a failure of a king because he was never content with who he was or what he had. He wanted to be the king, and he was, but he also wanted to be the priest. He was constantly jealous of what everybody else had, and he viewed them as a threat unless he could have what they all had. He could have performed his task, giving God the glory and been joyful, but instead he constantly lived in comparison, and his kingship failed under the competition of his soul. Church, I really believe this morning that every single one of us has some type of competitive reality going on in our hearts. Chances are this morning that all of us, at least in some part, believe in the Lord, believe in God, believe that he's good. But I am convinced inside our minds we are always prone to think, there is a solution to my problems other than the sovereign God of the universe working out his providence in our lives. Now look again at David's application to this competition, and it really is the theme of the song. In every commentary I studied this week, I made the same observation, or they made the same observation to me. In this prayer, David does something fascinating. David does not ask God to do anything. I find that staggering. Did you notice that as you read? It's so unusual. Throughout the psalm, David does not ask of the Lord to do anything at all. Typically in scripture, we are encouraged to ask God for everything. And we know that God wants to give us all things in response to our prayers. In other places, David does ask the Lord to do significant things, but not here. On this occasion, There's no request to God, but there is a prayer. Notice, why did this happen? I believe it's because David had experienced so much with the Lord. He went to the Lord in prayer and simply confessed what he believed. He confessed his faith in the form of a prayer. He announced to himself to his own heart, to his own mind, and to anyone who would listen. My trust is in God and God only. David knew God would not fail him. David knew that God would be gracious to him in his life. David knew that God would provide what he needed and when when he needed it. We see a picture here. David's confident in the Lord, not in himself, He is confident that God will do that which God will do. TCPC, as I thought about this passage and prayed this week, I really think we need a little more of this. This is not a lack of humility at all. But rather, this is a declaration of the exalted power of our King who loves us. This is our heart crying out to the Lord in proclamation, I believe you. I trust you. I'll follow you. So that's the competition. It's there. It's real. And the answer is found in our trust in the Lord alone. But now, secondly, consider the continuity of this message. Look at verses 5 through 8. And I love this. And frankly, I think this is what the Lord keeps teaching me in my own life. Verses 5 through 8 seem like a simple repeat of what we saw in the first four verses. 
Notice in verse 5, David's heart is still in silence as he waits for the Lord. He will wait on him. He reiterates that God is his rock, that God is his fortress, and that he won't be shaken. It's the same thing. He basically says the exact same thing he had already said. He just prays it again after he had already prayed it. Question, why does he repeat himself? Why does he pray what he had already prayed? I think we get a clue in verse 8. And again, I find this so encouraging. It's found in this message of, quote, at all times, in which David is now telling himself and others. Here's what I think was going on in David's life. And just like all of us, he had faced struggles, he had faced trials, he had faced challenges to his faith, various competitions throughout his life. And the, com- the, the, the competition to abandon God and to find help from someone else was there and it was real. Yet he had lived long enough that he had seen God's favor, that he knew this all-powerful king would provide for him in his unique way. So now in his heart, he simply had to repeat that which was true. But here's what happened. Another trial came the next day. Another issue had to be dealt with. Another health scare. Another difficult person. Another parenting concern. Another disappointment. Another crisis. Another issue at work. You see, what was dealt with yesterday is not the same thing that's going to be dealt with tomorrow. You see, I think what we all want is to think that if I trust the Lord yesterday, I don't have to trust him anymore. Now I have no more problems. Understand that is not how you will ever find joy. And that is not how life in a fallen world by faith works. As our faith grows, we trust that we will see him work as our king. I think in David's mind, there was concern that he might forget that which he already knew. And the exact same is true for us. So the solution for him is a solution for you and me this morning. We have to pray again and again and again and again. We say the truth about the Lord to the Lord tomorrow and the next day and the week after that. Declare to your heart that Jesus is on his throne. He was yesterday, he is today, and he will be tomorrow. This is a crazy story, and I promise it is true. Last year, I was returning home on the Friday following uh, the PCA's General Assembly. It's on the same week in June every year. It's our annual denominational meeting. Last year was in Birmingham. I drove home, and then Lisa and I went to a wedding rehearsal uh, of the Workman family. Uh, And I shared the story later last year. But on our way down to that wedding rehearsal, as we were driving to the venue... The strangest thing happened that a tree branch fell from the sky, landed on our car, and shattered the windshield as we were driving. Maybe you remember that story. I spent all day that next Saturday learning all the details that are necessary to replace a broken windshield. I had no idea what you were supposed to do. I just assumed you had to take it to the dealership. Turns out that's not what you do. There's a whole list of things, and now I understand. This year, Driving home from General Assembly, this was two days ago, it was in Memphis this year, 
going north on I-65, just past Bowling Green, a rock or a pebble or something fell out of the truck in front of us, ricocheted off the interstate, hit our windshield right in the middle, and it shattered again. One year exactly to the date that it happened previously. This has never happened in my life before, and it happened on the same day twice in a row. Now, you, again, you can't make this up, and I'm not sure what the Lord is teaching me. Maybe I don't need to go to General Assembly. <laughs> Maybe Lisa's not supposed to go with me. Maybe I should fly. I don't know what it is. But here's what I do know. I now know how to deal with a broken windshield. You don't take it to the, the dealership. No, you call your insurance company, and they know what to do about it. They send a glass company to me with my insurance, by God's grace, they're zero deductible. Last year, I just assumed it was going to cost tens of thousands of dollars. I had no idea. This year, I wasn't worried about it at all. I knew the glass had to be recalibrated. I don't know what recalibration of glass means. I just know from last year, it has to be done again this year. You see, I'm experienced in getting windshields replaced. But I still have to do it this year. Here's the point. If you're trusting Jesus and you've been trusting him for a long time, you've experienced him at work. You've prayed, you've waited, you've clung to his word, you've lived in fellowship with others, you've come to this table, you've confessed your sin, you've enjoyed the pardon of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, and God's providence has worked itself out to his glory. And joy comes as you continue again and again and again. John Calvin said this about this verse, and I paraphrase his words. Our minds can never be expected to reach such a perfect composure as shall preclude every inward anxiety. You know what he means by that? It means putting our hope in the Lord is not a one-time deal. Rather, finding joy along the years of our life marks our journey. Trusting in the Lord day after day after day, this is our pattern. This is who we are. This is our calling. This is our journey. This is what we do. Knowing that God alone is the rock of our salvation, this is the theme of our life. That's it. It's not just something we did in the past. It's what we do all the time. So I ask you, church, are you still trusting? Do you still believe? Are you still engaged? Are you confident this morning that Jesus really is working out his will You see, joy is here because Jesus is here. Not that we know the future, but we know the one who does. Here's my application for every single one of us today. If you consider yourself to be young, and that's all of us in light of eternity, I pray that decades from now you will have a vision for your life, that you're still trusting the Lord that you're still waiting upon the Lord, that you still believe in the goodness of the Lord, that you are still dependent upon your King, and that your joy comes from Him alone. Do you have a vision of your life that years from now, you'll still be trusting Him? 
You see, joy has competition. The joy does continue. But lastly, let's finish the psalm very quickly. Look back at verses 9 through 12 and see the choice that is before us. Consider God's joy or what we can find from the world. We see that David appeals to logic here for himself and for us as his readers. He provides legitimate reasons why exclusive hope in God makes sense. And a glimmer into the reality that trusting God exclusively creates an entirely different lifestyle from the rest of the world. To trust God alone for all things requires a view that the riches of God are greater than the riches of the world. That the opinions of God's people matter more than the opinions of people of the world. He essentially says this, when considering his option over a lifetime, it's pointless for him to fear men or to hope in man or to be consumed with the wealth of the world. So he says, whether in low estate or high estate, whether riches increase or riches decrease, they cannot ultimately give joy. Either you're a poor exile or a wealthy exile. Either way, you're an exile. But power belongs to God. The choice choice to trust God exclusively is easy to make when all of the facts are before us. David had seen, David had experienced enough to believe in the promises of God. What about you this morning? Where will you find your joy? Will you find it in Christ? Because if you will, it's available. And he is there for you. Let me end with this. There was a sporting event that caught my attention a couple weeks ago. It was the World Series for the NCAA softball tournament. I admit, I didn't watch any of the games, but I heard about the story. And it was about the Oklahoma women's softball team. What caught my attention first was their record. Their record this year was 61-1. and And they ended the year on a 53-game winning streak. I don't care what sport that is, that's impressive. No one had ever done that. It broke an NCAA record. It was unreal, 53 games in a row. But the fascinating part of the season for me came after the national championship game in the press conference. After defeating Florida State for the title in the post-game interview, third baseman Alyssa Brito said this when asked how the team remained so focused throughout the year. She said, honestly, we really just fix our eyes on Christ. I think that's why we're so steady in what we do. You see, this game gives us an opportunity to glorify God And we have, quote, an eternity of joy with our Father. And all of my sisters in Christ will be with me to the end, and we will be with our King. That's the sermon. (laughs) You see, they were confident as they played softball because their hope and their eyes were fixed upon the King. Confidence and joy go together. As we come to this table, let's be confident that our King is alive and that he loves us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and then we will transition to the Lord's Prayer. And Father, we love these words. We love them because they are true. 
because your love is revealed through them. Oh, Father, as a church, as a people, as a community, I pray by your grace that you would make us strong in faith. And as a result of that, we would be people truly who are perpetually happy because, Jesus, you're on your throne. Father, I pray that you would do that now. And we pray, Jesus says, you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.